joined by Brian Quintens, head of policy at A16Z Crypto. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Great to be with you. So, Brian, you were the uh, former commissioner of the CFTC, uh, a regulator for uh, commodities and futures, and, and you, you tell us, and that is one bucket. And then there's the Securities and Exchange Commission, and uh, there's kind of a been a confusion over who is the regulator for digital assets, who where, who has the jurisdiction, and there's been a, a lot of confusion. So, uh, where who regulates what at this point? I think to your question around uh, who has authority for what, um, uh, at, at this point, I think it's fair to say that we just don't know. Uh, and I'm, if I'm confused about that as a former commissioner, how can innovators and entrepreneurs expect to be able to um, s stop their life, put their reputations on the line, you know, give up their nights and weekends with their family to dedicate themselves to, a, you know, a vision or accomplishing a dream of building a company where they have no idea if all of a sudden some agency is going to just decide out of thin air to create an enforcement action against them because the lines are unclear. I mean, right now we have Ether futures contracts trading within the CFTC's jurisdiction and the chair of the SEC refusing to say that ETH is not a security. I mean, how can, we, how can there be any more confusion out there, which is exactly why we believe that legislation is so critically important and the Fit for the 21st Century Act that passed both the House Financial Services Committee on, in a bipartisan way and passed the House Agriculture Committee in a unanimous fashion that, that really takes and answers the hard questions that have existed, which is wh where are the right buckets and for what reasons what does a fully functional network mean? What does it mean to be decentralized so we can at least start trying to provide that clarity, which is going to be so critical to building the future of the internet here in this country? And what uh, framework would you want in a, in a perfect world? Uh, who would be the primary regulator for, for cryptocurrencies? And, and how would it be clear? Because as, as we're talking about uh, the, the CFTC, they regulate if, the, if there's a futures contract on it. But if you know, someone has a, a protocol and there's no futures contract, uh, from where does the CFTC get its authority? There are a couple aspects of this. The first is that securities laws have existed for a very long time to do a very specific thing that they are very good at. Right? How those rules and laws are being applied now, I think a lot of us strongly disagree with. But um, their original intent uh, was, was to um, ensure that investors that invested in a company and received some interest in that company, consideration you know, for that interest, and relied on the efforts of a management team for a return, had adequate proper disclosures and had markets with integrity that they could be able to transact. I don't think anyone wants a new law to be created or a new regime to be created for someone like a Goldman Sachs to go out and say, well, I really wanted to issue stock, but I'm just going to go issue a token, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? You know, this is not supposed to be an end around, around our end run around our securities laws and markets. But um, there are plenty of tokens and the whole um, ethos of the ecosystem striving towards decentralization really negates the original purpose of those securities laws and the, the reason they exist and how they actually were meant to operate. However, if, if, if 
if that process, that marketplace, that issuance is outside of the SEC, the question is, you know, should it be somewhere else to try to provide a market with integrity that protects consumers, that appropriately supervises centralized intermediaries, right? So we don't have continued failures like FTX, um, uh, and we can bring, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, regulatory specificity to this market so that both centralized and decentralized concepts can exist. So you, on the panel that you were part of earlier today, the question was, what is the state of regulation in, in crypto? And, and some folks had a somewhat optimistic answer. And I think you had a less than optimistic answer. Tell us why. What is the state of regulation in, in crypto? I give us a very bad grade at the moment. But I think I think I did agree that there were some very bright, strong lights that that you can see in the distance, and I think we're moving towards those lights in, in a fairly quick fashion. Um, but there's damage that's being done along the way. So how quickly can we achieve that? How quickly can we get there? Mm -hmm. And where are those those lights? Right, those lights are in the progress Congress is making in passing legislation that seeks to clarify these tough terms and this jurisdictional issue. This progress is being made in the courts, where courts are striking down agency actions as illegally violating the APA um, that uh, they said did not meet um, the most basic requirements of an agency action, that the agency exceeded its authority in doing something, striking down um, uh, uh, agency actions where the agency claimed the law was clear. And the courts have said it absolutely is not clear. And you, um, you can't claim it's clear when it's not clear. Um, and I think we're going to see more of those things. There are going to be more rules, I think, that will be finalized that are going to receive more court challenges from the industry. That I, And I said this today, mm -hmm. no one likes being the tip of the spear. But what we have to realize is that this is bigger than crypto. Right? This is the government needing to act appropriately and within the bounds of the law. And we need to be the tip of that spear, not only for us, but for everybody else. And I've seen a wonderful conviction in this space to be willing to do that. Right. So that's a, a optimistic outlook. But what, so, so I guess you're optimistic about the court's reaction to the SEC's uh, cases. But there have been a lot of SEC cases of companies that, uh, and do you expect that that uh, let's call it interventionist attitude at the SEC will continue and? You know, what will the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months look like if that will remain the attitude of the SEC or it gets taken to an even higher fever pitch? So, uh, yeah, I think, I think that was why I, I um, was, was, was fairly negative in my assessment of the current landscape because of how detrimental the overreach you know, has been to the ecosystem here in this country um, that, that appear to be you know, um, aggressive jurisdictional land grabs as opposed to ensuring, I mean, we have to remember, regulatory agencies work for the American people. They don't work for themselves, right? They're not little kingdoms or castles or fiefdoms. They, they are charged by Congress to execute a mission on behalf of the American public. And they owe it to the American public to be very clear about what their rules are and why they are taking certain actions and meet the minimum obligations that Congress has set in being able to do so. Um, and they have not been doing that, right? So, so the impact of, of 
all of those actions, all of that lack of clarity, which keeps getting pushed further and further out from true authorities is having a very negative impact. And I, I don't see it stopping in the near term. I see it stopping either once Congress acts or once a court acts or once there's someone with a different perspective and willing to provide positive leadership that's in those roles at uh, the heads of those agencies. And what do you think about the CFTC's uh, role? When you were a commissioner there, uh, you, you, know, you wanted to the CFTC to take a, a bigger role and not, not have the B2B the, the SEC, but uh, how would you characterize the current uh, uh, viewpoint of the CFTC and, and their actions with regards to crypto? So um, I, have, I, have really, I have really strong mixed feelings about the CFTC at this point. I feel like on the one hand, they're trying to advertise themselves as being a responsible regulator um, uh, over innovative products um, and uh, trying to you know, show that they have a strong rule set, which they do, uh, that protects market customers. Uh, but at the, same, at, at the same time, they are putting out enforcement press releases that uh, are targeting um, respondents, companies, uh, for activities that they don't have jurisdiction over, that they would, in my view, lose in court over, and that they shouldn't be um, claiming or, or they have any authority you know, to handle. And, and so it would be much more positive if the agency decided to take a policy approach to this as opposed to an enforcement approach. And I think that's consistent between both the CFTC and the SEC. I just think there have been fewer cases in the CFT, fewer enforcement cases in the CFTC's purview that have that have shown us the um, uh, unproductive tendencies of messaging enforcement actions. And you said the CFTC putting out press releases. Is it something particular about uh, sending a message and you know, let it, letting the public know, or, or, um, or in other words, is is it just? Is, is there a bite and there are lawsuits coming in the, in the bike, or is it just kind of a, a bark and then they're seeing where the, how the public reacts and how companies react? Um, so I think, I think it's trying to send a message. I think it's, it's using the weight of the government to go after um, you know, smaller entities uh, with, with lower fines to entice them to settle so that maybe the facts of the actual complaint are narrower but it provides them a, a megaphone in the street corner to try to shout a message that then confuses the public around what they can and can't do and what the CFTC may actually be targeting or is concerned about. Um, uh, it, is, it is very clear in my mind that you cannot hold an individual accountable for purely publishing code if it is broad-based and has you know, broadly applicable purposes. But yet the CFTC in this recent press release claimed that it could, and that um, uh, because the code was designed to allow someone to do something, therefore the people that created that code were in violation of the law, and that's just wrong. And, and tell me, I, I should know this, but this, what is the CFTC's authority other than that we, we talked about uh, previously? You, know, you buy a cu couple, you know, hundred contracts of oil, and if the oil is not there, the CFTC is going to get involved, and the you know, fraudulent actor is going to be dealt with, and they're going to be dealt with quick. 
But what other than that is there has historically been their responsibilities, and it sounds like they might be looking to expand. So, so uh, the CFTC is a market regulator, right? So the, their purview is over the derivatives marketplace. Derivatives are contracts that create exposure to something, either a physical commodity um, or, or, or swapping exposure between commodities like, you know, interest rates, fixed versus floating, and so on and such forth. Um, and because they are a market regulator, they design rules and systems that try to create safety and soundness um, uh, for the intermediaries that exist, for the clearing houses that are clearing products, for the exchanges that are listing contracts, uh, for anti-manipulation, you know, issues in the marketplace. And what kind of manipulation? Uh, well, so the CFTC, when I was there, uh, prosecuted a lot of spoofing cases, uh, which was a new authority that was granted to it by Dodd-Frank, where uh, a person is on both sides uh, of an order book trying to affect um, uh, the price in one direction that beneficially impacts a previous position, right? Um, uh, you know, th there, there are a lot of different kinds of examples of manipulative practices. You could be trying to, trying to influence a settlement index at the point of settlement by um, banging the close, which is, you know, really heavily getting involved in the, very, in the expiration time of mm -hmm. that contract so that you move the index enough to really impact uh, a different position. Um, so a lot of it's market, it's marking uh, market-based trading activity. Um, where the CFTC has a, a more limited set of authorities that are purely enforcement is over uh, spot commodity transactions, the exchange of a commodity for cash. Mm -hmm. And um, there it only has anti-fraud um, authorities, anti-manipulation also, but, but really truly anti-fraud authorities. So uh, the example we were just talking about, like if, if I was selling what I claimed were bars of gold to people and they were just gold-painted bars of soap, and I made a lot of money on it, and I left town, that would be a case the CFTC could bring, even though it doesn't involve a derivatives contract. It involves fraudulent sales of commodities. Right? And so if, you, if we see, and we have seen, and I think it's good that they've been doing this and continue to do this, we do see fraudulent activity in the sale of made-up fictitious crypto assets. Um, and they have brought those cases. They have brought cases... Um, as you know, fraudulent transactions in the spot commodity market because people have, you know, created or or um, not even created, you know, pretended to create some crypto token that they go out and solicit a lot of money for, um, and uh, abscond with it. So, look, there there are bad actors in this ecosystem, but they're not bad actors because of the crypto ecosystem. They are just bad actors. And they get attracted to whatever sector where there is a lot of enthusiasm and sub-ignorance and um, ambiguous regulatory lines. And so the best thing that we can do to create a, more, um, a, a, a market with more integrity is to pass clear jurisdictional lines that empower these agencies to actually use their authorities appropriately. So in the fraud cases you cited, it's an entity says, oh, I'm going to sell you a certain number of tokens, and they receive the cash or stable coins or, or whatever, but they don't deliver the actual currency or crypto, and or the crypto doesn't actually exist. That is... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what about a situation, and you know, I'm not you know, that familiar with the, the technicals of it, but a so-called rug pull where you know, they, they do have 100 tokens. They actually do get the 100 tokens, but the value of the you know, stable coins or that they're denominated in 
collapses because of uh, you know, some sort of manipulation or other things. So I guess I mean you know, that is a problem in the, the ecosystem. I think it's fair to say. And um, uh, secondly, what about marketing? If you, you know you hire a famous person and say this this thing is so great, and then that that also happens as well. So I think uh, I would say, and uh, tell me if you would agree or disagree that those are two you know, historically have been issues in crypto over the past uh, two two three years. Um, so if you if you agree that those are two issues, uh, how would the CFTC regulate that, and would it have to sort of create new powers for itself? Or could it rely on its historical powers? So it, it can't create new powers okay. for yes. itself, <laughs> even though some agencies think they can okay. and are trying to. Yes, they can't. Yeah. Um, I, I think in your example of rug pulls, um, it's a it's a good question. Um, I think it just it really just depends on what the facts and circumstances are, and whether or not there's enough evidence to show that you know people really didn't get what they had been promised, and was was it a marketing issue was when does a um, when does a marketing issue turn into a fraud issue right and so I, I think in terms of getting those authorities that's why there has been discussion in Congress about marketing regimes associated with crypto um, assets so that you can try to create some level of liability for people that go out there and and um, Promote things uh, that they know are fraudulent, right, or that they um, are are, de are designed to deceive people. Um, the UK just brought something uh, like that online with their financial promotions regime that apply to crypto. That is very strict, uh, very strict. And um, while I think that there may be some that are going to have a hard time complying with it, and we'll see how the implementation and enforcement of it goes, you know, at at, at some point. You know, I, I think we want the innovation to to speak for itself. Right? I don't think we 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 it, it's necessarily positive for the community to to base its hope off of you know influencers and peddlers. Um, so um, uh, we'll see if Congress takes that and 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 runs with that. There have been some discussions there, and I, I think that that could be interesting. Absolutely, and actually, my mistake, which you corrected, I think. Your, your correction perfectly highlights your view is you believe uh, that the CFTC should not, or SEC should not create powers for itself and be activist, that it should, if it is given new powers, it should be given those by, by Congress. Yes, and there's actually a, um, uh, there's a major questions doctrine concept that floats around uh, when you talk about the Supreme Court, uh, whether or not an agency is taking an action that uh, needs to be reserved for Congress because of how major of an issue it is, how much economic activity, economic activity it impacts. Uh, there's also something called Chevron deference, which mm. the court is actually revisiting this upcoming term, which was based off of the Chevron case from, I think, 1984, the early 1980s, where uh, the case at that time deferred to an agency's interpretation of the law, even though the law was ambiguous in what it said. And that standard has allowed agencies to basically read in new authorities to somewhat ambiguous statutes. If we, if, if that is a case that gets overturned and that precedent goes away, you have a very strong um, uh, statement that um, the 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 era of of agencies trying to create their own authorities is over. Mm, thank you. And when you said earlier that ether is under just jurisdiction of this. CFTC was is is it uh, either the token itself or is it just because there are futures contracts and those futures contracts are 
uh, obviously, you know, if they're registered with the CFTC and they're on the CME, by definition, so they're regulated. it's both. Okay, okay, Thanks. it's both. If 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 Ether was classified as a security, then a futures contract on ETH on a security would have a completely different regulatory regime than the the CFTC's futures regulatory regime, mm. which is what Ether exists under as of now. In addition, there have been multiple court cases that have said Ether is a commodity and therefore it's under the CFTC's jurisdiction. Now, the SEC can always come after the fact and say, okay, now we think it's a security. They'd have to prove that in court and they would also have to show why they didn't take action against how ETH futures contracts are currently regulated because they would have been violating the law. And so what do you, do you think that for CFTC to, to be a regulator, there would have to be a, a futures contract? Because, you know, 20,000 cryptocurrencies, maybe there, there can be a lot of, uh, you know, regulated futures contracts on a lot of them, but maybe not, not all of them. To, to, to be a market regulator, mm -hmm. they would be a market regulator over a derivatives contract on crypto. The reason we haven't seen more derivatives contracts on crypto is because the SEC is refusing to state that those crypto tokens can be in the CFTC's jurisdiction for the purposes of futures contracts. But yes, mm -hmm. ideally, there are a lot more futures contracts and swaps contracts on cryptocurrencies and crypto assets because they are incredibly valuable um, risk management tools and price discovery tools. Uh, and, and they've served the legacy commodity markets extremely well. And so um, we are holding up responsible risk management uh, by the refusal of the agencies to successfully adjudicate this issue. Um, so ideally, uh, Congress will come in and, and ensure that we know where and how tokens fall along those lines. And what about uh, futures contract, perpetual futures that are not uh, centrally cleared, like on the on the CME, but that are in the you know, so-called DeFi protocols? How would those fit within a CFTC regime? So, I mean, I think that that speaks to a few cases that the CFTC recently brought. And in in my view, you know, the press releases were very aggressive in terms of how they were trying to identify responsible individuals for that. And and that aggressiveness extended to simply programming something that could allow contracts like that to trade. Um, in my view, there has to be much more substantial uh, direct involvement in the creation of those contracts and accepting orders for those contracts or soliciting funds for those contracts. So much more centralization, much more centralization control. You know, you don't have to make fees off of it, but you know, feeing off of that activity, all of those things, I think, um, would be indicia of something that the CFTC could look at. But I'm also a believer that, you know, there, there can be a lot of benefits to DeFi-based derivatives. Um, the the uh, self-executing kind of clearing model of over-marginalization is a very efficient tool uh, for what it's designed to do, which is to take human behavior out of the equation and managing defaults. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some downsides to it. And I don't know that it will replace, you know, the legacy clearing model. But in my view, individuals should be free to choose which one they want to use. And the CFTC has not so far done anything about trying to understand if and how they can bring that kind of market 
you know, into the regulatory fold. Um, and we've also seen a lot of uh, international jurisdictions punt on the, on, on the idea of looking at DeFi, which frankly is a more um, uh, valuable and correct position than just taking one-off enforcement actions and, and filling press releases with a bunch of authorities that don't exist. And looking at international regulation of, of crypto and DeFi, what do you see there and how do you assess the risks of, uh, you know, if the U.S. regulates crypto away that uh, all the innovation will move overseas? I mean, it's a big question. Right now we have international regulatory bodies, standard setting bodies like the FSB, like IOSCO, uh, like BIS that are um, putting out very negative views of DeFi. But yet we do have jurisdictions that have deliberately punted on, uh, on how to and if to and how to approach DeFi. Uh, the EU did that through Mika, even though there are a few things in there that I, I think you know, may not be as um, clean as we would hope. Um, the UK is doing that, uh, where they're specifically focusing on, on centralized intermediaries in the crypto ecosystem before they look at decentralized software and how it operates. Um, and we're engaged with all of them because we, we have a view that um, you know, the software should be able to be published and it should be able to, a, individuals should be able to access it. Um, but if there is a business that operates a front end that provides, facilitates, accept orders for, that may require a different regulatory treatment. It shouldn't have to be pro prohib prohibited, but there could be a regulatory you know, touch point there that ensures bad things don't happen. Um, if there's a jurisdiction that can land a regulatory regime like that, I think you will see a lot of interest in it. And in my view, you know, it's an open question as to whether or not that innovation will ever come back to the United States if it leaves. Well, thanks, Brian. Brian, my final question for you, bit of a bit of a fun one, is okay. I want to ask about April 2020, uh, March 2020. You know, uh, global economy enters a very severe recession. Demand for oil falls very sharply, and uh, in April 2020, the supply of oil goes so much, and demand crashes so much that the supply of oil, uh, oil actually goes negative. And those futures contracts are you know, at the CFTC. So, just my question, take it wherever you want, is. What was that like? How was April 2020? And uh, I mean, it must have been a surreal experience. Uh, it was. It was surreal. Um, it was uh, somewhat. It was somewhat insane uh, to be at a regulatory agency where you saw price actions like that. Um, it unfortunately took us a little while to understand how and why that occurred, and um, and I think there were like everything. It's it's it it's not unfortunately a simple issue you know it it's you, you had a you had a role between one futures contract and the next you had a widely um held view that supply capacity was filling up right and so there wasn't anywhere to be able to um you know put new supply you had very large short positions in the marketplace and then you had some activity allowable activity in the in that particular contract um, that that had an outsized impact. Yep. And right. you know, people say, oh, it's, it's ten dollars. It's a total buy, even though it went to negative thirty-eight. It would have been interesting to be a market participant. Yeah. Uh, interesting is an understatement. It was, um, and interesting. It was also interesting to be at the agency, and that was an understatement. But um, I, look, just just like people, agencies aren't perfect, uh, and the marketplace isn't perfect. 
And sometimes you create rules because you have experienced something that went wrong and you don't want to have it happen again. The idea is that you create those rules where you don't also preclude innovation from happening. And that's what we hope happens in crypto, that we fight the bad and promote the good. There you go. Brian, thank you so much. Nice to be with you.